This morning's a little different. We're doing a little topical message on the sanctity of life, and uh, you can turn over um, in your Bibles. We'll be in Acts chapter 17 this morning, Acts chapter 17. Uh, this week is Sanctity of Life Week, and uh, all across this nation, pastors are bringing up the sacredness of life, and, and we're going to do the same here uh, this morning. Vince Lombardi once, he was one of the most outstanding uh, coaches of the, the Green Bay Packers, and each uh, year... He was so successful, um, the Super Bowl winners received the uh, Lombardi Trophy, as you may know. By the way, good, I hope the 49ers do well today, too. But each year, Coach Lombardi would start off each summer camp, and I'd, you probably heard this. He would get the players together, and he'd get them together in kind of a locker room, and grab a football, and he'd hold it up. And he said, gentlemen, this is a football. (laughs) And he'd start every year teaching them the fundamentals of the game of football. Even though these were professional athletes, they probably thought football in their sleep, dreamt about it, thought about it all day. That's all they did. But he knew that unless they had the fundamentals down, you're really at a loss to build any foundation of a team. And the basics of fundamentals for us as believers and as Christians and as the human race really begins in the book of Genesis. Uh, Understand that we are part of God's eternal plan. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, We are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works which God has prepared for us to do in advance. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 God told Jeremiah, before I even formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to all the nations. Today, as that video said, this year marks the 40th year of Roe versus Wade. We all remember probably where we were on September 11, 2001, when those planes took over 3,500 lives. They were literally extinguished within seconds as the World Trade Towers fell. And in that crowd of people, no doubt, were potential doctors and scientists and preachers and future leaders whose lives were taken by unknown terrorists at the time. And we endured weeks of news footage showing those planes running into those towers and hearing about the loss of life. What did not make headlines on September 12, 2001, the very next day, were the 4,000 lives that were extinguished by what is called pro-choice. It happened again September 12th, September 13th, September 14th. Each day since 1973, approximately 4,000 unborn babies are aborted each day. 28,000 a week 
112,000 each month. Almost one and a half million per year. Sometimes we fail to recognize that on September 11, 2001, terrorists, sure, they killed over 3,500 people. And we cried out for justice. And it was swift as it should have been. But 4,000 unborn babies are being taken away every day. And very seldom do we see any weeping or anger or outcry for justice. Did you know that the penalty for killing an unborn eagle in this country is a fine of up to $5,000 in five years in prison? (laughs) But the killing of an unborn baby is not considered a crime at all as long as the mother approves. One in four women have an abortion, and one in ten women in the church have an abortion. If you look at the American war casualties, the Revolutionary War was 25,324 casualties. The Civil War was 498,332. World War II was 407,316. The Korean War was 54,246. Vietnam took 56,655 lives. The Gulf War, 293. And yet there's a war that's raging for the unborn, upwards of 31 million since abortion was legalized in 1973. That's six times, beloved, the number of casualties in all of those wars combined. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, says this, You were created... For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know them full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Do you know that within 21 days, the baby's backbone, the spinal cord, the nervous system are forming? A small heart is present and it's beating. At one month, arms and legs are present. There's a head with rudimentary eyes and ears and mouth and a brain. See, we want people to understand that it's important for us to know that our worth as a person is not based on what we do or whether we meet certain criteria or qualities. Instead, our value exists because God set His image, the Word of God tells us, upon us. That's because God sustains us. He sacrificed His own begotten Son for us. And He seeks to use us in His kingdom. I mean, how encouraging it should be for us to learn God's purpose 
in our life is tied directly to his ability to use us. No matter what our physical or mental condition might be. So turn with me to the book of Acts. Because I just want to read these verses for us this morning. Acts chapter 17. Your outline says verse 17, but it should be verse 24 to 30. Acts chapter 17. Pick it up in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of our own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But no, he commands all people everywhere to repent. As we look at this text, I want you to look at verses 24 and 25. First thing I want us to notice this morning is that God made us. God made all things, that He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and He gives to all life and breath in all things. That's what it says. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 says, For by Him, Christ, were all things created. The things that are in heaven, Colossians 1, 16-17, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. It says all things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things. And by Him all things consist. In other words, He holds everything together. There's going to be a day, beloved, when Christ lets go. You talk to the the most intense nuclear physicists in the world and they'll say, you know, when we get right down to the atom and, you know, you got all these things in there running around and we don't understand how it all holds together. Christ holds it together. That's the answer. And one day he's going to let go. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Beloved, or behold, children are a gift from the Lord. See, we have to understand that we don't make our own destiny. God is the power behind barrenness, but he's also the power behind conception. You read in the Bible where God closed the womb of a woman. And then you can read in the Bible where God opened the womb of a woman. 
See, we are simply the human instrumentation through which God makes children, makes a baby. You cannot, through sexual relationships, create a soul, an immortal, eternal soul. And if you understand that, then every life is precious. Every life is sacred. Do you know that God is the creator of of those handicapped people, those deformed people that are born? In Exodus 4.11, Moses says this, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? See, we live in a society where we only expect perfection. And when perfection doesn't happen, well, then society is allowed an easy way to just kind of get rid of the pregnancy. Remember in John chapter 9, the disciples asked Jesus concerning an individual who sinned this man or his parents because he was blind. And people looked at him and said, this guy must have sinned pretty bad because he's blind. He was born blind, so maybe his parents were just bad people. But Jesus said this, nobody, nobody sinned. This man was born blind for the glory of God. That puts a whole different spin on things, doesn't it? That God gives to all life and breath and does not have any needs himself. In Job chapter 34, verses 14 and 15, it says this, If it were God's intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all mankind, listen to this, would perish together and man would return to dust. Do you know that every day that you wake up and your eyes open and you take that breath of fresh air in the morning, that that's a gift from God? Paul says the real God is the one who gives, who pours out. He doesn't need anything from us. He does not live, Paul says, in temples made by man. This place is a building. It's just a gathering place for us. There's nothing holy about this place. We don't worship this building. God is the one who made you. He made me. He made everything about you and I. And there is nothing you can give him that he needs. He is rather, the Bible says, giving himself continually to you. I mean, just think of the the verses so wide known. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave. Secondly, not only did God make all things, but I want you to see here this morning that God determined his appointed times and boundaries for mankind. Look at verse 26. And he made... 
from one man, every nation of mankind, to live all on all the face of the earth. And then it says this, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. See, we think that we make our own destiny. We think that we're, you know, who we are because we're self-made and all. Don't believe that. Who you are is a gift from God. The Apostle Paul says that God made from one blood, basically, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Remember little kids singing the song, yellow, or red, yellow, black, and white. We are all precious, right, in his sight. No one person, creed, or nation has a higher standing or quality than another. All life is sacred. All human life is sacred. Somehow we think as Americans we have a corner on God's blessing. We don't. Paul says that God also determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, you hear this spoken at services, memorial services and funerals. There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted. That word there, time, in the Hebrew, means an appointed time or a proper time. It, it signifies a fixed time, a, a set time in which God has already worked out in advance. A proper, an appropriate time. See, God is the God of order, beloved. He's, a, he's not a God of chaos. He doesn't just create us and throw us here on earth and say, okay, hope your, it works out fine for you. No. The Bible says that our days are numbered. The psalmist says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. They're not put together by a set of random events and choices that somehow we make. The Bible says, both in Ecclesiastes and Acts, that there's a proper, appropriate time which has been determined by our sovereign God for birth and death to occur. Solomon says there, there's a time to be born and a time to die. These times are obviously determined by the divine counsel of God. So to kill a life, because it doesn't meet our criteria concerning quality of life, is really to play like God. Abortion, the killing of an unborn human being, or infanticide, the killing of an infant, or euthanasia, the killing of the ill and the infirmed, or homicide, the murder of an innocent person, at any stage in life. Those are all revoltive acts of sin against a holy God. That word abortion, by the way, comes from the Latin word, which means to perish by untimely birth. 
That's what the word literally means. To perish by untimely birth. The word sanctity, on the other hand, describes that which is sacred, hallowed. And we know that throughout the Bible, God over and over again in the Old Testament and even the New, He condemns the innocent bloodshed that goes on in our societies. But like birth, death also has its time. And there's a clear and distinct difference between allowing the death process to occur and speeding it up. I mean, I don't know if you ever think about death, but I have occasional thoughts of it. I always wonder, well, Lord, how's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? Matter of fact, I had a discussion with my grandson the night before I left. Laying in bed, and he said, Grandpa, tomorrow you're going to go fly back to California, right? I said, yeah. So what if the plane crashes? He's 10. I said, well, Mason, if the plane crashes, I'll be in a better place. And then he goes, but what if you don't die? What if you're just injured really, really bad? I'm going, well, (laughs) I'd rather die. Well, do you really want to die, Grandpa? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not saying I want to die, but I'm looking forward to meeting the Lord. And we had a good, long discussion into the wee hours of the morning (laughs) about this whole thing. Sometimes you think about death. And sometimes we think that somehow we are holding the the, the controls to that when we're not. Everyone, beloved, dies on time at the appropriate time. There's no exception there. The argument that we have a right to decide when life is worth living, really it opens up Pandora's box to all sorts of things. Well, if someone just becomes inconvenient, you've got to take care of them. Well, then, okay, you can get rid of them. And these are very controversial things we're talking about. That's why we go back to the Word of God, and that's why we go back to the fundamentals and realize that, you know what? Every life is precious in God's sight. Psalm 116, verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. That's what we have to hold on to. The death process for us may be ugly, I don't know. Or it may be quick. But we have to hold on to, you know what, there's something better. There's some place we're going because of our faith, our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins. We have to trust in the wisdom of God, not man, concerning these things. To everything, there's a season. James 1.5 says, If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Why do tragic events happen in life? We don't know. 
But they do. And you can't sit there and tell people, well, that was a mistake. That was No. You don't think God orchestrates things? Allows, at least allows things to take place? We serve a sovereign God. Thirdly, not only has God made all things, not only has God determined or appointed His times concerning these things, but thirdly, I want you to see in verse 27 28, God made mankind in His image, it says. It says that in verse 28. 27 and 28. So they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for Him and find Him. Though He is not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. See, very clearly that God made us in His image. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says this, The dust returns to the ground it came forth, and the Spirit returns to God who what? Who gave it. You don't just die and lay there in the dirt. Your body goes back to the dust from which it was created, but your spirit continues to live. For those that know Christ, they, they continue to live in the presence of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior, for those that don't, They're ushered into an eternity of hell. God originally gave life through the first man and woman he created. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, and he created them. Our image comes from our Creator. It's not assigned to us by other human beings. Psalm 119.73 says, Your hand made me and fashioned me. It speaks of a kind of a almost a potter forming a pot. The verse I read in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you, I knew you. That word to know there conveys incredible meaning in the Old Testament and the Hebrew. It goes far deeper than just mere intellectual knowledge of somebody or awareness. That word really talks about a personal commitment, an intimate knowledge, an intimate experience with that person. It's used for the sexual union between a husband and a wife in Genesis 4.1. That's the kind of knowledge we're talking about. When we were back in D.C., my son-in-law arranged a tour of the White House for us. And it's a little different nowadays. You can't just walk up to the White House. You should just be able to go up there and you could file through the White House, you know, uh, before 9-11. Now you can't. You've got to have an appointment. You've got to go through your congressman or a military member, something like that, and and they're kind of hard to get. But we had our appointment, and we get in line. And, and uh, about two months before I even went back there, I had to give Will my date of birth, my Social Security number, information, and they do this whole clearance thing. So it's about 8 o'clock, 8.30 in the morning, D.C. It's freezing out. It's probably in the high 20s, 30s. 
And we're waiting in this line, and there's other people there. And we get up, and you have to have your ID out. You get your ID out, and Will had the paper that said we were authorized to go in there. And the Secret Service has various lines set up, and I was kind of following everybody else, and they all showed their ID, and they walked right through. And the Secret Service looks at me, looks at my license, looks at me again, and he goes, Mr. Converse, you're going to have to step over here. And there goes my family off into the White House. <laughs> and I'm standing there going, what? Well, your birth date is, we don't have the same birth date that you have on your California driver's license, on our record. I'm like, okay. So we have to do a secondary kind of security check and everything. It'll just be a few moments. You got to wait over here in this holding pen. I said, okay. And there's a couple other people over there. So I make my way over there and kind of standing there. And, you know, at one point, Ambika kind of turns around and tries to, well, what's going on? You know, ma'am, you got to keep moving. It's like, none of your business. You just keep going. <laughs> and I thought, wow, these guys are pretty serious. You know, they all got the little iPads out and iPhones. And it'd just be a few moments, 10, 15 minutes. So I'm waiting there. And I started trying to talk to one of the guys that was there. I said, well, what was your, in the Secret Service immediately, hey, no, no talking there, you can't talk to each other. It's like, good night, you know. And these guys are serious. Um, eventually, you know, after a couple other people, he called me my name and he came and I went forward and, and he held up his little iPad and, and there's my picture on there. And, and he said, is that you? I said, yeah, that's me. <laughs> so that's pretty incredible, you know. Does this happen often? He wouldn't even answer any questions. He was just very straightforward with me. And uh, he says, is this the proper information, birth date, whatever? Yeah, fine, okay. All right, you're, you're clear to go. Go to the next part. And they had like four different stations for clearing you to go into this place. And uh, so I'm thinking, you know, this guy didn't know me. He didn't know who I was. He had all the information about me, but he didn't really even know me. As I made my way up the path there, I got closer to the doors where you actually go in the secondary thing. And there's a sign there that says White House. I, don't, I didn't even know what it said. I just said, I want to take a picture of something, right? Well, you're not allowed to do that <clears throat> in the White House. So I'm thinking, I'm not in the White House yet, right? I'm just on the path to the White House. So I pull my little iPhone out and I'm holding it up and I, I take the picture. And it was actually a picture of a sign that says, no photography, no <laughs> I'm thinking, what an idiot I am, you know. So just as I was clicking it, the, the D.C. cop comes, hey, yeah, what are you doing? You know, and kind of chewed me out. I'm like, oh, man, I'm never going to make it in there. I said, well, I thought it was inside the White House. No, anywhere on the ground, no photography. Put that away, turn it off, fine. And we got in there, and we had a good time. But none of those people knew me. See, th- th- this is the kind of knowledge that, that God knows us intimately. God not only knew about Jeremiah, he knew him. He was involved with him in a personal way. That's how our God is with us. He doesn't just know us. He knows us intimately. The Bible says that he knows even the hairs that are on our head. Or the ones that aren't. Whatever it might be, he knows. God says that each human life is woven. That word is is to weave And it's weaved by Him. He knits us together. When He says knits us together, it's kind of an interesting play on the words there. It actually means to embroider. Each little human frame in the womb. 
Do you ever look at yourself in the mirror? Say, oh, why did God make me this way? You know, I don't know, but God did. And when you stand there and you feel bad about what you see, it's like spitting in the artist's face. It's like saying, why did you make me this way, God? As if he doesn't know better than you. We aren't just a bunch of clones. He's, he has a personalized plan for each one of us. And God is saying, I started getting you ready and the world ready for you long before you were even born. I worked through your father and your mother, through your grandfather and your grandmothers, and your great-grandfathers and your great-grandmothers. For generations, I was preparing you for this day of birth. What an incredible thing. History tells us that the mother of Sir Walter Scott loved poetry and art. It's no wonder he followed in his mother's love. The mother of Napoleon Bonaparte was ambitious for herself and her children. The mother of John and Charles Wesley was a godly and devout woman with great ability. See, God prepares for a child long before that child is born. It's not a mistake. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. You would think that maybe just something special applied to Jeremiah, but that's not what he means. He's talking of all creation there. And we fail to see that what the Lord says about Jeremiah is true about us also. There's nothing unusual about it. God never made another one like you. Some of you may be sitting next to somebody and go, oh, thank God for that. We're all special. We have our little quirks, we have our personalities. We have the things we like. We have the things we dislike. We have our gifts and our abilities. All those things God put perfectly in place for us. God forms a human life. Billions and billions that have been born on this earth. There's not one duplicate. Even twins aren't duplicate. Each one is unique, prepared for God for the time in which he lives. And he says to Jeremiah, look, I've prepared you for this hour. He's prepared each one of us for the time in which we live. Lastly, I want you to see here that we should not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. That's what he says in verses 29 and 30. He says, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. See, the pride of of humanity has really, I think, blinded us in a great way in making proper choices when it concerns life. 
Ecclesiastes 11.5 says this, As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God, who makes all. That's what I was reading earlier. God's ways are not like ours. They're much higher. And yet we live in a society somehow that's lost its bearings of right and wrong. Wrong is right and right is wrong. There's political decisions that are based more on power than on morality. The overview of Scripture really reveals the taking of innocent human life is hated and it's condemned by God. It's not the way of the Spirit. And as verse 30 says, we live in ignorance. But it says, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent. See, society is quick to focus on the freedom of choice, but it's slow to focus on the results of that choice, as we saw in the video. We soon forget that there's two victims in abortion, the child who dies and the mother who bears the emotional and psychological scars, which don't go away, by the way. With no acknowledgement of the loss of life, there's no funeral, there's no grief process. And it definitely leads to emotional, relational problems. There's a thing today called post-abortion stress disorder. Many women privately live the life described in Matthew 2.18. After Herod had all those babies murdered, we looked at that at Christmas time, in Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be conformed because they are not. One writer says that abortion is an act of despair. He says 70% of women undergoing abortion believe the procedure is morally wrong. They act against their conscience because they feel that they have no other choice. They don't feel that they can share it even with their own family, much less with their church family, because they're afraid of rejection. And if they try to share the grief with someone who's pro-choice, they're told, oh, just forget about it and go on with your life. It wasn't really a baby. It's just a fetus. See, those who favor this, this pro-choice agenda, right to choose, don't want to authenticate the women's grief for fear of casting this decision as immoral. And denying the, the reality of abortion and the pain that it involves only not only hurts the babies, but it also hurts the women. It hurts the men. It hurts families across this nation and this world. And I think we have to do everything within our power to pray and to, to seek to change what direction our nation is headed in. 
Proverbs 24, 11 to 12 says, Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? Who does not he know who keeps your soul? Will he not render to every man according to his work? See, God knows our hearts, beloved. And I think it's a time for this country to stand up, especially believers, and to not riot in the streets, not picket, but first of all, to pray. To pray that somehow God would turn this thing around. I mean, the only good in this whole issue is that, you know, all those babies that have been aborted, my theology says that they're with the Lord. In his sovereign plan, somehow, he, he woves that all together. But it doesn't undo the scars for the women left behind. And I pray that as we join together as believers in this country, that our prayer would be that we would think of life as sacred sacred, and celebrated as such. I mean, this is kind of a sobering message. I understand it's a very controversial thing. In society, at least. But it's sad that we've relegated just one day. <laughs> in 365 days. To speak out about this horrible tragedy that's going on every day in our country. And I want to say that if you've been touched by abortion somehow. Maybe you've gone through one. Maybe you know somebody who's gone through one. We're not here to judge you. That's not our heart. Our heart is to help you understand that there can be restoration. That there, there is grace extended at the cross, not judgment. And we pray that you will find that grace through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank You for our time this morning. Lord, I know that as a creator, your heart grieves when any innocent life is murdered. And yet, Lord, even in that, we see your gracious hand extended. Father, we know that this is a very divisive issue in our country, and even in the church today. But Lord, we pray that we would not stand on our politics, our own personal choice, but we would stand upon your word. And your word clearly says, as we've seen this morning, that you created us with a purpose and a plan. And that we should never forget that. We long to be used by you in whatever way that you desire to use us. But for that to happen, we first have to acknowledge you as our Lord and Savior, that we have to turn to you and ask you to forgive us of our sins. There's not a person in this room who hasn't sinned against a holy God in some way or fashion, thought, deed. And Lord, we thank you that you have provided a way for our sins to be forgiven. We can't pay for them ourselves. 
We like to think we can. We like to maybe think we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try harder and come to church and pray and, and, and read the Bible and do all these good things, help the homeless, and somehow that's going to get us into heaven. It won't. Those are all great things. But not one of those things or all those things have the power to forgive sin. Only the sacrifice of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, has the ability to do that. And we thank you that you don't deal with us as a group of people. You deal with us as individuals. Each one of us is responsible before you to come to you to acknowledge our sin, our need of a Savior. And when we do that, when we cry out to you, a holy God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me this way of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help me to set aside my plans and my agenda and live my life for you. You're the one that created me. You're the one that gifted me. You're the one that knows everything about me. You know what's best for me. Only then can we experience this forgiveness and grace that we've talked about. And so, Father, we pray for each heart here this morning. If there's any here this morning who is yet to cry out to you, to ask them, ask you for forgiveness, Lord. I pray that you would help them, even in their unbelief, help them through that. And Lord, I pray for us as believers that we would remember that there's a a lost and dying world outside these four walls that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Christ. And they not only need to hear it, but they need to see it lived in our lives each and every day. I pray that as representatives, not only of you, but of this church, as we work and we live, Lord, that we would do it in a way that honors you, brings glory to you, draws attention to you, not us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.